Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, I'm talking with Bronwyn Maddox, Director of the Institute for Government, about how well this government has performed over the past year during the pandemic. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, a literary magazine full of politics and a political magazine full of literature. Listeners can subscribe at a special rate of just £1 an issue by using the URL lrb.me talk. That's lrb.me talk. Bronwyn, it's a very difficult question, partly, of course, because so much of what's happened over the past year is unprecedented. So it's quite hard to know how to calibrate this kind of audit of government performance. Let's start with the successes, because people tend to start with the failures. What do you think this government has done well over the last year? There are some things, you're right. One is getting financial support to a lot of people very quickly. And that sounds as if it's a quick decision a waving of a wand. It isn't. It's actually going to get into their bank accounts. And that happened surprisingly quickly to me. And it happened because the government and other governments had spent years and years wrestling with things like the much maligned universal credit and the benefit systems and HMRC, wrangling with people's taxes, getting those online. And those systems worked. So when the government said, look, we want to get support to people very quickly, that did happen. And it was able to set up the furlough scheme and so on. And I think particularly those early months were distinguished by the success of the economic package and by this, you know, very tedious but essential digital machinery of government that everyone assumes is there, but uh, you really know it when it isn't there. So that worked. And some other things worked, I think, fairly well in the beginning. The NHS, despite many alerts, didn't fall over, so to speak. But of course, back then, it had almost entirely suspended treatment for non-coronavirus things. And then there were some one-off things that got done and weren't very much used at the beginning, like the big Nightingale hospitals and so on. But some things did get done, and I think we're very glad of those now. But the fact is, there is, as I think you're hinting at, a rather long list of other things that didn't go so well. Yeah, and we will definitely come on to those. I mean, what you say about the infrastructure that was there that allowed under this crisis situation that no one had anticipated support to get to people. And I think the fact that there hasn't been a huge amount of popular discontent on that issue. You know, I've spoken, I'm sure you have, it's anecdotal to people who've been surprised by how efficiently they have received the help that was promised. And yet it's kind of inadvertent, not just this government, but governments building this complicated and for many people rather boring infrastructure and for another purpose as well, some of it for universal credit. Does it suggest that maybe these systems are more adaptable than we appreciated? Because clearly something has been adapted for a purpose for which it wasn't intended. Well, it's a similar purpose. It is getting Mm. money to people. Mm -hmm. And I think the pain that went into universal credit, an idea that all parties signed on to in the beginning of taking many different benefits and replacing them with one, that did pay off in the sense that the Department of Work and Pensions had people's um, details And it was a much simpler process than trying to adjust many different benefits at once. So in a sense, yes, it was was a different use of it, but not very different. The purpose was still to get money to people who needed it. And I I think that did work. HMRC and again, the pain that people have gone through for years of trying to get the online um, 
tax reporting and people filing their income tax online, that has paid off in the sense that they also knew people's details. And when you look at things like employers now trying to work the furlough scheme, you hear a lot of anecdotes, and it's just anecdotes, that it really is quite flexible now that they can put someone on and off furlough very easily and do that online. Though we also hear signs that HMRC is struggling with the sheer volume of such changes. So your point about is it repurposed? Yes and no. It's still the same basic purpose of dealing with people's basic financial interactions with the state. Where stuff was repurposed, I think, is perhaps some of the Brexit preparations and some of the preparations for lorries queuing and parks and things like that, which were got ready to the extent they were in anticipation of Brexit and actually proved useful for the coronavirus checks that had to come in at the border. I completely take your point that at a practical level, it's sort of the same thing, getting money to people and making sure you have the details you need. But you could say in a way it's politically repurposed. And this does possibly pose a dilemma for the Labour Party, which is committed to undoing some of the universal credit infrastructure as well as the principle of it. And if we have learned that some of these things that take many years and across different administrations to build is possibly one of the lessons here that new governments should be careful about promising to dismantle things that have shown that they work for other political purposes than the ones for which they were intended. Yes, I must say, I think Labour's got itself in a pickle over this. There is an absolutely legitimate debate about the level of benefits, which is low by comparison with some other countries, and that the £20 a week uplift that is very much in contention at the moment with elements of the government wanting to withdraw that, that is, as analysts have shown, less than the rise that many people have got over many decades in their benefit. So there is a real question about the level. I think Labour would be better advised to direct their efforts at that rather than unpicking the whole of universal credit, which is now, it seems to be, working fairly well. Many mistakes that could have been avoided. I mean, it was piloted too fast, elements of this. And famously, the delay in people getting their money in the beginning was avoidable. But actually, now this is a working system. And to take apart the machinery, as well as change the level, I think would be a mistake for Labour. So a couple more things I'd like to ask you before we get on to the negative side of the ledger. Vaccines, uh, you know, the, the UK, and that means by implication the UK government, it's been heralded as a success story. To what extent do you think the government itself can claim credit? It can claim a bit of credit. It has been funneling money, R&D money, scientific support money, to some of the groups that have turned out to be successful in this. And it's been doing that for some time, long before coronavirus came on the scene. So some of the vaccine work that anticipated this, but wasn't specifically directed to coronavirus, that did get government funding. And then there was money to accelerate the development of vaccines at several key points in the last year. So there is some there. What I find amusing is to press government ministers on whether they are glad that the Pfizer bid for AstraZeneca didn't go ahead in 2014 in the end withdrew, but whether government policy should now be to protect national champions. And they get quite coy over that. They don't want to say that, but they are glad, I think, probably, that AstraZeneca is a British-Swedish company. And the world may be glad that Pfizer and AstraZeneca, which have produced two different types of vaccine in this, have gone two ways rather than one, if you like. 
So I think there's all kinds of strands of government policy that come into this, but it can claim a bit of credit because, yes, it has given funding and funding that looks decisive in retrospect to some of these groups at important times. And in the contrast that's sometimes drawn between the test and trace task force and the vaccine task force, the relative failure of the first, the relative success of the second, do you think this has more to do with what they were tasked to do rather than how they might have performed as individuals or organisations? It's both, but I think it's mainly to do with what they were tasked to do because testing and tracing large numbers of people means dealing with those people and quite often in ways that they don't want. I mean, I think it's now that the test and trace is working better, it's also becoming clear that many people don't have an incentive at all to go along with it because they fear being um, told to stay home or not go to work and lose money and so on. So there's a compliance problem. And also the virus had got to such a scale by the time the test and trace was being rolled out that it was going to be very difficult. I think the vaccine, though, it's not that they had a dramatically easier task. There's two difficult bits of it. One was choosing the right vaccines. And here, clearly, Kate Bingham, who was put in charge of this and assembling a squad of industry experts around her, using their contacts to talk to the companies, did a brilliant job in buying for the UK a whole range of vaccines from around the world. And that had to be a very, very difficult decision at that point. But then you've still got, in doing the rollout, you've got something analogous to the test and trace, which is trying to reach large numbers of people very quickly. Here, though, because it's being done a lot through the NHS, not entirely, that probably is easier than the test and trace, which is having to be set up from scratch or using local authorities. But it's clear the vaccine group did do a very good job on that. So that all having been said, it is also the case that the UK has the highest per capita death rate of any major country, major economy. We've had a series of disaster would be overstating it, but failures in relation to education policy over the last year and other things too. Again, if you had to sort of rank what's gone wrong, what would come top of your list? I would call the education mistakes disasters in terms of the effect on the number of pupils, uh, the knock-on effect on universities and choice, the lack of understanding of how much education was going to be lost and lack of um, provision for that. And the fact that these decisions happened in comparative slow motion compared to, say, the first few weeks of the health decisions that had to be taken in this crisis. But I wouldn't put that top. No, I would put some of the health decisions because in that very high death rate, you've got two numbers that are very hard to get away from. One is the rate of care home deaths right at the beginning, which is at least 20,000 going by the death certificates and could be 30,000. And that's in care homes in the first few months. And then you've got the fact that just about half of the deaths of this, now more than 100,000, have happened since mid-November. Yes, as the government says, it was poleaxed by the fact that there was a new variant around, more infectious, and it getting around the corners of the measures that it had put in place. But you've got two things that look as if they should be avoidable. Very rapid contamination of care homes at the beginning, this very vulnerable population. So we know some of those being discharged from hospitals without testing. And then this very rapid spread of the second wave, a lot of deaths in that, and that to some extent 
should have been avoidable and people are trying to work out how much of that is attributable to the autumn's easing up and to the summer's eat out to help out and so on. But um, surely some of it was. And I think those two figures stick out within the UK's 100,000. But the education mess uh, comes a pretty close second because that has been spectacular. And within those kinds of disasters or something less than disasters, do you think it is possible yet or indeed would it ever be possible to identify where and with whom the blame lies? I mean, there's a tendency, say, with education to think that the minister responsible, Gavin Williamson, though he's still in post, is the primary blame holder here. But at one end, there's also the possibility that a lot of this was set by the tone and also maybe by the decisions of the prime minister. We have a very, in that sense, prime ministerial system of government. And on the other side, of course, there are questions about responsibility or accountability of officials and non-elected decision makers. And in the education case, the person who had to carry the can was indeed someone who wasn't elected. Is it possible to separate these things out or, or should we think of this as sort of more systemic? It's a good question. If you want a systemic answer, it is things like the way the Department for Education, which is not one of the major offices of state, has still gone through really dramatic and quite ideological changes in all kinds of directions uh, for decades. And that affects the degree of control or, or influence that the department has over schools. It affects the amount of information it gets them, it affects its ability to say, for example, open up and to know whether or not they've got the ability to do that and still comply with social distancing and so on. It affects its relationship with local authorities and with the schools themselves. And so the, there is a, a systemic context. It's not and hasn't been an easy department to run for a long time and gets buffeted about by ideology and then doesn't always get the attention to mechanics that it sometimes needs. All the same in this, I think the decisions and the consequences of some of the decisions were foreseeable. When there was a decision to scrap exams fairly early in the summer, the consequences of following a policy that said no grade inflation on previous years, which is in off-call of the exam regulator's mandate, but um, it was reinforced by the Department for Education. That could have been foreseen. We know that because it was foreseen. Many, many people told the department that. And MPs, when they began to consider this, absolutely told the department this, as did other experts. And then to let this play out of the summer and to allow the results day to be as late as it was, then having a knock-on effect on the university applications and then having to U-turn on that, that was you know, should have been foreseen. Even now, you've got exams suspended for a second year with hints that the next year as well may be suspended because of just the disruption to children's education. And yet, you don't know for sure how these things are going to be assessed in the summer. So I think the lack of consideration and explanation is something that you can take back to individual people. And the Secretary of State, Gavin Williamson, absolutely is one of those. I do think if you're going to offer him a short defence, it would be that in many cases, the prime minister has been himself jumping in to dictate some of these things. For example, the uh, direction that schools should go back in June. And then it was discovered it was actually too difficult for them to do that. So I think in many cases, he's been trying to do what the prime minister wanted and perhaps didn't have the clout to push back and say, look, this really isn't going to be doable or is going to result in a 
in a mess. Do the officials bear responsibility? Absolutely. They do, I think, in these circumstances, have the responsibility for saying, look, this really, really isn't going to work. And from all our experience, these are the problems that are going to come. And indeed, to ask for ministerial direction if they think it's if it's not workable. There's a whole catalogue of things there that I think you can rightly take back to individual people. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. A case that's sometimes made against this government is that the timeliness of decisions is where the biggest fault lies, sometimes too slow. The Prime Minister seems temperamentally often to be reluctant, at least to want to wait until the last moment before he has to commit himself. He has form on that going all the way back, not just all the way back to the Brexit referendum, but probably all the way back through his career. But at the same time, sometimes the decisions seem quite precipitate and last minute chops and changes. Is that a fair criticism that a lot of what's gone wrong here has to do not necessarily with the decisions themselves, but with the timing? I think that's fair. But at the same time, the Prime Minister's instinct to try to delay a decision in the middle of enormous uncertainty, which is what all these decisions are, is not, seems to be really reprehensible. It's an instinct that in other circumstances, you might well welcome and say, look, he's trying to get the most information and his instincts are against telling people what to do or shut down their lives. And in normal times, this is very much what you'd like in a leader. But on the other hand, so many times the delay has been shown to be damaging in in the sense of the virus's ability to forge ahead that I think people are getting rather weary of it if they haven't been before. And the latest one is obviously about the borders and whether there should be even tighter restrictions on everyone coming into the UK. And we've had a lot of examples of where, where the government has tightened up its policy when its first attempt has been shown to be inadequate. And I think patience for that may be wearing out. Part of the government's defence, of course, will be that it was following the science. That's been its consistent line. And when the science changes, as for instance, it changed around the mutations of the virus policy had to change too. Yet at the same time, I think a criticism that is often levelled and will continue to be levelled against the government is how it communicated this. Because following the science has often been presented as we had no choice. There's no kind of uncertainty or nuance around this. The science says and we do. And yet over the past year, what we have learned is that there is a lot of uncertainty, including around the science. I mean, sometimes when people say it's a failure of communication, that's a way of sort of getting out from saying it's a failure at all. But you know, failures of communication cost lives. Do you think that this is a, a large-scale failure of communication? It has been a failure of communication. But on the positive side, when you look at the vaccine uptake, people's faith in science still seems to be considerable. So however the government has communicated the science, um, and indeed we've had scientists with many, many different views leaping onto the media and making clear they've got different views about this. The effect has not been, I think, to undermine people's trust. People are still, it seems to me, looking at the science and saying, well, look, I believe this has been approached in a an honourable and a way, and I'm going to go and get my vaccine, by and large. But the government, I think, made a mistake in the beginning by putting so much weight on following the science, because to me, that 
sidestepped its responsibility as a government to say, look, this is a decision with many, many factors, which we as the government, as your elected representatives, are going to have to weigh against each other on your behalf. And so we're going to have to weigh the threat to you, the British people, from coronavirus against threat to your health from other things, against mental health, against loss of education, against the economy. And we're going to take the best decision we can based on all that. Now, in the early months, I think it was absolutely right to say that came down anyway to doing what you could to clamp down on the virus. And then there was a legitimate debate over the summer about whether the economic voice, if you like, needed more airing because it seemed that the lockdown had been successful and the consciousness of the economic damage was rising. You know, there's part of this that is genuinely quite hard to communicate, which is a changing perspective. But some of it, I think the government did duck in the beginning and it made things harder for itself by keeping on with this line of following the science when the decision is so much more complicated than that. And as you say, it is, I mean, genuinely, it is hard to communicate. It's very hard for politicians to communicate uncertainty. They're not trained to do it, but also it's just a rhetorical challenge. And many of the decisions have been nightmarish decisions, no question. Notwithstanding that, are you surprised, there's quite a lot of sort of polling and survey and focus group data that suggests that this government, which is still ahead in the opinion polls, it's ahead, even though everyone can see that more people have died in this country relative to other countries of a similar size on quite a significant scale. And everyone's, you know, no one's unaware of that. And yet this government seems to have sympathy. And particularly in focus group findings, the Times did a study of this over the last few days in the old red wall seats. It is striking the extent to which people seem to recognise that the government, Boris Johnson and the government, were dealt a really miserable hand and almost anyone would have struggled. Are you surprised that there is that public sympathy? A bit. And you could see how it would go the other way if people felt that particularly the death toll was absolutely unforgivable. And I'm sure that view is there as well within the polling. But I think there is also appreciation for the difficulty of it, for the special characteristics of Britain that made this more difficult of just how open the country is and how open the capital city is and how international its connections are. I do think there's appreciation for the um, financial support that the government gave And people have got very involved in these decisions. And so while you certainly hear people sounding off against the government about what a terrible job it's done, you also hear people almost taking themselves into the government, saying, well, I would have done this, and I would have done that. And people are very, very involved in this one in a way that it could have gone either way, in my view, but it actually has worked to the government's favour. At the same time, I think the opposition has found it very hard to position itself. And it's struggled with this line of, well, look, we support the government, but it should have done everything earlier, more quickly, more decisively, and just more of it. And it's been a complicated message, I think, from the opposition, and not one that gives people a clear sense of what the opposition would offer. So it, it does seem to be, you know, given with the benefit of hindsight, and still isn't giving us a sort of labour vision of a country after all this is is over. So there are always two sides to why the government's ahead in polling or level pegging in polling, and, and one of them is the opposition. I was going to ask exactly that question, because there does seem to be a relative lack of sympathy for the opposition. Its leader of the opposition is famously the hardest job in British politics, and it seems to have been pretty hard this year. And yet, you could say that there was a hostage to fortune aspect to this, because Starmer decided that what tends to be called the politics of competence was going to be his focus. 
And that's partly to contrast his leadership of the Labour Party with what came before with the Corbyn years. But the trouble with the politics of competence is one risk is if the government does something competently, as it is at the moment, it seems to be with the vaccine, you look a bit exposed, what else have you got? And the other is that people may wonder, would you really have done better? Where is the evidence? As you say, you can say in hindsight what you would have done, but would you really have done better? And at the moment, at least, given that Keir Starmer seems to be struggling for the first time in his leadership, it does look a bit like that might have been a mistake, that this was not a year to focus on the politics of competence. It was, as you say, a year to see this terrible event with all of these extraordinary medium and long-term consequences as an opportunity to lay out a vision for the country we want to build. And that's we haven't heard that. I think that's exactly right. And I'd probably go further than that, because the politics of competence is not a banner that people march under. We find this at the Institute of Government, where that we exist to try and get government more competent. And yet it's not the kind of thing that gets people fired up in the streets, banging drums and demanding it right now, unless something has spectacularly not worked. What do we want competence? When do we want it? Yeah, no, no. Right now. <laughs> Yesterday. Um, no, there are things, I mean, awful um, horror, all the, the cladding on buildings, examples of incompetence where people do obviously rightly rage about it. But by and large, people take competent government for granted. And then they want something more on top of that. They want hope, they want excitement, they want a sense of direction, they want a sense of their lives and the country developing. And to some extent, flickering moments, maybe, but Boris Johnson has managed to do that more successfully with vaccines than with Brexit, I think. But where he hits the right note, you can tell it's the kind of thing that people want in leaders. And I haven't heard that from Keir Starmer. I mean, there's lots in here that ought to be good fuel for Labour about how to run the public services of the future, about the kind of relations between people, about whether people can live their lives in different ways. Maybe we've begun to hear it about the devolved administrations of the UK, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, and how what their relation might be there. He's beginning to say something that's different from this government. But we haven't heard an awful lot of that and we haven't heard an awful lot of, of hope. And so he's stuck praising things when they go well, like the vaccines. And then, as you said, putting out this line that, well, we would have done it better. <laughs> And uh, there's many people who would inevitably raise an eyebrow at that. So a couple of questions to finish. One is about the civil service. So the Institute for Government, you focus a lot on civil service reform. And part of these questions, as we just discussed, are about not just the performance of ministers or the prime minister, but it's more systemic and it obviously involves a lot of officials. So I'm just reading Suzanne Hayward's book about her late husband, Jeremy Hayward. She's going to be on Talking Politics in a couple of weeks, so we'll be able to talk to her about this. But I was thinking, and it's you know it's there in the background of some conversations that people have been having, there's a tendency to think that government is about personalities and civil service is about systems. But it's all about people. And Jeremy Hayward was a remarkable person. And you know, he was the leading civil servant of his generation. And one or two people have wondered whether, had he still been with us, this might have been different. That actually the thing that was missing, perhaps, was civil service leadership of the kind that he provided. I mean, his legacy is still there, including in some of the consequences of Brexit. Do you believe that argument at all? Do you think that maybe when we think about the civil service, we should be more willing to think about the role of individuals and personalities, all those things that we think about in relation to electoral democratic politics? It matters just as much the leadership at the civil service level. I think, yes, you can see the absence of Jeremy Hayward at some key points. And his command of detail 
I think would have tightened up some of the early decisions that were taken and tightened up the sense of this being a very new government, which it was, a new government that was focused on Brexit and the January 31st deadline was focused on levelling up after that. And I think a more established civil service central leadership might have helped the government get a better grip on those first crucial weeks when time was lost. But the sense of, you know, do individuals matter? They, they matter enormously. And there are a lot of times in the past year or so when people have said to me, oh, actually, we really miss Jeremy Hayward for this or that. Or you can see the absence by stories about Mark Carney popping up in the, in the, in the Evening Standard or something. Jeremy would have got a grip of that. I think it does matter. I think, though, the number 10 operation now with Simon Case there as Cabinet Secretary and Dan Roosevelt come in as Chief of Staff, I think that really has got the makings of a, a tight ship and in a way that wasn't quite there at the beginning. And then you had the sound and fury of Dominic Cummings on top of all that, which I think, in retrospect, was something of a distraction. Part of what Cummings was meant to bring was a shake-up of how government works, including how the civil service works. So maybe to finish, we could just think a bit not about the Cummings agenda, but about the possibilities that will open up over the coming years as we come out of this for really serious reform. So some people have compared this to a kind of wartime phenomenon. We're still in the war phase. We're still just firefighting, essentially, and the government is still firefighting, I think, on a daily basis. But soon the opportunities will open up for government and opposition to think about not just what lessons have been learned, but what needs to change. Some of this will be to do with policy. But if you think about institutional or structural change, the possibility of reforming how government works, how the civil service works. As a last question, where would you prioritise there? What do you think needs to change first and fastest coming out of this? I think you need a clearer sense of accountability. We are very much for civil servants being more accountable to Parliament, not just permanent secretaries in their role as accounting officer for the money, the spending of their department. I think there does need to be that sense of Parliament being able to ask questions of these people, even though obviously they are directed by their ministers. More on that, more on transparency. This government is not moving well in that direction on freedom of information and so on. And then I think there is room for some big structural changes. And actually, the government has moved because of quite a bit of preparation that has been done behind the scenes. It's moved to this reorganisation of the National Health Service, of getting rid of some of the Andrew Lansley reforms of years back and bringing the NHS more directly under the control of ministers. And I think this crisis has shown that, that people want the NHS to be better and to be able to support them in these kind of crises, as well as their regular health needs. And that is going to take more money and more attention. And that deservedly, I think, then comes more under ministers' control because they take all the responsibility for it, as this crisis has shown. And so they might as well have control of it, which during parts of this crisis, they really didn't. And because they've taken more responsibility and because of the importance of timeliness in decision-making, do you think there is an inevitable, maybe medium-term trend here towards more forms of centralised executive control? I mean, that might go along with, as you're arguing for greater accountability on the part of not just very senior civil servants, but throughout the decision-making process. But is one of the big lessons that comes out of this going to be to maybe accelerate an existing trend towards, and we'll have to part for now the question of what might happen to the United Kingdom and devolved government, but at the centre, 
the trend towards greater executive control? Yes, I think so. It depends where that executive is. And I think one thing that may come out of this is more of a role for local government in some of these decisions. For example, the test and tracing is almost impossible to get working without that. And there are going to be lots and lots of other examples of how these decisions are best made there. But I think clearer lines of control and clearer sense of who actually has responsibility then for these decisions and who people can look at and say, okay, that person made that decision. If you would like to hear me talking to Jeremy Paxman on his podcast about the state of democracy and questions like not just whether children can vote, but whether you should have to take a test to be allowed to vote at all, you can hear that at The Lock-In with Jeremy Paxman. And if you'd like to hear Talking Politics without adverts interrupting the conversation in the middle, it's very easy to sign up. Wherever you get this podcast, there will be a link to Talking Politics Plus. If you click on that, you will see everything that you need to do. The book that we mentioned in our conversation with Bronwyn by Suzanne Haywood, her remarkable memoir of her late husband, Jeremy Haywood, perhaps the most important man in British politics over the last generation. It's called What Does Jeremy Think? And we will be discussing it with her in a couple of weeks on Talking Politics. Next week, we're going to be asking directly the question, is Boris really back? My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.